Hello, welcome back everyone. If it works to have your video on, it's great for me to be able to see people. Yeah, I'll come back and say hi. <laughs> yeah, it looks like people are coming back. Yeah, please, uh, again, if you can put your video on, it's very nice for me to be able to see people as, as, as I speak. So you may have gathered from the guided practice um, some sense of what I'll be exploring. I want to explore today how we practice with what we might call views. We could also talk about um, beliefs or opinions or positions, sometimes uh, philosophy or ideology. And this is a, a very central aspect of our practice. How do we work with uh, you know, the ideas that are important for us, the, our views about ourselves, about others, um, about the world? And I, I was partly thinking of this uh, talk in preparation for the holiday times, when people may be together with ones we sometimes call loved ones, and there might be exchange of views. Does anyone have those occur in your holiday gatherings? Right. And so this could be called practicing with views at the time of the holidays. <laughs> okay. Um, that being said, it's an important, really crucial area in our practice. And it was also very, very central for the historical Buddha. And he gave rather radical teachings, I believe, on how to work with, with views. And, you know, as suggested by talking about holiday gatherings, how we practice with views is very, very crucial for being with others, particularly when there are differences or conflicts, disagreements. How are we with others? Very central to our own well-being. I think we know that we may have all sorts of views about ourselves, right? All sorts of views, uh, you know, uh, some of them positive, some of them negative. You know, we may judge ourselves harshly, you know, about something we did or I wasted the last five years of my life. Uh, how many of us know those sort of harsh views about self that sometimes are there, right? very, you know, very common. Um, many of them are harder because they often can be relatively unconscious as well. We can hold views often generated in childhood that we hardly know about. And a lot of what we may find if we uh, look in our own minds in meditation or in psychological work or, uh, you know, what we learn from relationships we may learn a lot of that unconscious conditioning that's, that's there for us. And maybe in a parallel way, there, you know, I think maybe for many of us more obvious that when we look to the social and political world, how we relate to views is also very, very crucial. 
you know, we seem to have in many situations uh, what's sometimes called a polarization of views where people often live in bubbles with people of their own views and can't really and may rarely speak with those with different views. How many of you know something like that in your own personal experience, right? You know, just in maybe extended family and so forth. So it's a really crucial question. How do we work with those kind of views as well? You know, I was thinking of uh, uh, something that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. once said, that he said that when he was working, you know, in the South in the 1950s and 60s, he said that uh, there's a great danger. He said that people generally live in monologue rather than dialogue. This is a strong statement that people actually have a hard time talking across views. You know, and we can also ask what's the relationship of our views to what we sometimes call the facts or the evidence. Do those, do, do facts and evidence matter for our views or do we hold our views whatever happens? A lot of interesting things to look at, you know. And there was a, there's a very striking example of people working with views that I found from the uh, election in Georgia from about a year, uh, from about, not a year ago, a week ago. Um, uh, some of you know there was a there was an interesting, you know, to say the least, election for the Senate in Georgia, which took place what December fifth, last uh, Tuesday last week, uh, between uh, a former football star named Herschel Walker and uh, a minister, uh, both of them black, a black minister named Raphael Warnock, who was actually already in the Senate and, and held the, uh, uh, the ministership at the same church where Dr. King uh, was a minister. I think, what, I think it's uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, I believe. And um, it was an interesting election. Um, Herschel Walker didn't actually live in Georgia. <laughs> he lived in Texas. <laughs> and he didn't seem to have qualifications to be a senator, nor did he seem to have interest. <laughs> and he also um, was very, very adamant about um, outlawing abortion following the Republican line, but he himself had paid for a number of abortions with former girlfriends. And uh, there were a lot of those sorts of things. Uh, he was also, at he had been accused of domestic violence, a lot, you know, quite a lot of things. And there was an interesting uh, fact that came out after the election that when they looked to the voting choices of white Christian evangelicals in Georgia, 88% of them voted against the minister, the Christian minister, <laughs> right? Interesting, right? And voted for someone who was, had been accused of violence, you know, uh, all, you know, all the things I mentioned. So 
very interesting, you know, what's going on there with views? Do the Christian views really matter or are they, or is something else happening, right? So very interesting um, example. So I want to explore that. We may come back to the example, um, but I want to explore really in two ways how we practice with views. One is to look at the uh, teachings of the Buddha on views and maybe connect that with uh, ways that we might practice. And then secondly, give three sort of very basic ways that we can practice with looking at views, similar to what we looked at in the guided meditation, or in the meditation we did, which was lightly guided. And I want to invite people to work with these practices in the next week and to take on views. And you can also, you know, depending on when you have your holiday gathering, some of them may occur between now and next Wednesday. Some of them may occur later. Partly depends on your religious tradition. And, uh, but I want to invite you to uh, bring these into the next week and work with these, you know, at, the, the, at these different levels. So I want to organize my looking at the Buddha um, at the teachings of the Buddha by looking at four main uh, teachings were t and coming through text that he gave. And I'll bring these up onto the screen in probably in you know a minute or two. I want to give a little bit of a, a preface. Um, that the Buddha's approach was very, very pragmatic. Even though he gave teachings himself, he continually invited people not to get attached even to his teachings, even to his particular views. And he wanted people to ground their spiritual practice, if we call it that, very pragmatically. What works? What helps us develop wisdom, awareness, you know, uh, compassion, kindness, and so forth? Very, very pragmatic. And he, he saw that views, if we hold them somewhat lightly can be really helpful for transformation and awakening. And if we get attached to them, there can be problems. And we can actually see some of these problems develop even in the Buddhist tradition after the Buddha died. You know, the Buddha, I think, was and partly in because you know, his teachings were not written down and were actually not made public in that way for 500 years. That there was a certain, uh, I think that probably supported the pragmatic quality. In later Buddhist tradition, there tended to be more dogmatism, you know, and more getting attached to views and really uh, hooked on them. And related to that, he said that, at, you know, probably look at this more next time, at the level of language we don't find ultimate truth. So we're not, we don't find truth in views, opinions, and teachings. We find that more at the experiential level. We find, we find the truth more experientially. So that being said, let's look at four texts which bring out those 
uh, points that I just mentioned. So let's bring that up, uh, Carlita. And we have the first three of them here. You know, and I'm going to, and we can just keep those uh, three on the screen. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll um, I think Carlita, if you can send me that PDF of this, and I'll put this up on Dharma Seed, so we'll have it along with the recording, which, which can be helpful. So here's the first one, which is a teaching that the Buddha gave uh, to really point to the pragmatic nature of the teachings. And some of you may know this well. It's, it's called the, the parable of the, uh, of the poisoned arrow. He said, it's just as if a person were wounded with an arrow thickly smeared with poison. Friends and companion, kins, people, and relatives would provide this person with a surgeon. And the person would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the one who wounded me was a noble warrior, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. Those are the castes in the caste system in India at that time. The person would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know the given name and clan name of the one who wounded me, until I know whether that person was tall, medium, or short, until I know whether the person was dark, ruddy brown, or golden colored, until I know the home village, town, or city, until I know whether the bow with which I was wounded was a longbow or a crossbow, and the Buddha concludes, that person or that man would die, and those things would still remain unknown to him. So all of that information doesn't have anything to do, we might say, with the practical task at hand. And again, it's a parable or an analogy saying to keep things really pragmatic, to keep them practical. A second example of the Buddha's teaching on views. Even though the Buddha taught often on what is usually called not-self. He had teachings about the nature of the self, and he said that there's no sort of ultimate um, soul or separate self. Still, when he was asked by a wandering yogi named Vachagota, the Buddha was asked directly by Vachagota, wandering yogi, about whether there is a self. He did not answer. He was asked whether there is no self. He did not answer. He later said that to emphasize either self or not self would confuse the person. Again, we could say a very uh, pragmatic basis for giving teachings. You know, and we, have, we find actually situations like that at other times where the Buddha really emphasizes the pragmatics of the situation, sometimes not even reiterating something that he said in another place. Third teaching. Third teaching. This is sometimes called the parable of the raft. And I'll read this in whole. I don't have the whole passage here um, on the screen, but I'll read this passage. What it's going to say is that the teachings and practices are for practical purposes, for awakening, for developing, for transforming, and that they're not to be grasped after. They're not to become attached to. Here's the parable. Imagine, friends, 
that a person in the course of a journey, imagine a, a person in the course of a journey who arrives at a great expanse of water, whose near bank is dangerous and whose far bank offers safety, but there is no ferry boat or bridge to take this person across the water. So the person thinks, what if I collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bound them together as a raft, supported by the raft and by paddling with my hands and feet, I shall then be able to reach the far bank. The person does this and succeeds in getting across. On arriving at the far bank, it might occur to this person to say, this raft has been very helpful indeed. What if I were to hoist it on my head or shoulders and then proceed on my journey? What do you think? By carrying the raft uh, with this person, would the person be doing what should be done with a raft? No, replied the audience. So what should this person do with the raft? Having arrived at the far bank, the person might think, yes, this raft has been very useful, but now I should just haul it onto dry land and leave it floating on the water, and then continue, or, or, or leave it floating in the water, and then continue on my journey. In this way, the person would be doing what should be done with that raft. And then the Buddha concludes, the Dharma too is like a raft. We could say the teachings and practices are like a raft. They serve the purpose of crossing over, not the purpose of grasping. When you understand that the Dharma, the teachings and practices are like a raft, and that you should let go even of positive things, then how much more should you let go of negative things? Very powerful teaching, very directly saying that the Dharma or the Dhamma is like a raft should not be grasped after, that we shouldn't grasp after the teachings, the practices, not to grasp after meditation, to remember the larger practical teachings. You know, and I can remember sometimes when I would be meditating, you know, particularly in my early years, I would sometimes get very grasping after having my meditation be the right way or get to this result. Or sometimes if, if someone on the house was making noise, I would get very angry. Don't they know they're making noise and I'm meditating? These are signs of grasping, right? And so very, very interesting teaching not to grasp after the teachings or the practices. Very pragmatic, very practical. And then the fourth teaching uh, is comes from a text called the Kalama Sutta that some of you may know. And this was where the Buddha was talking to a group of people called the Kalamas who lived at a crossroads. I think of it as a place where there were many different spiritual teachers coming, men, you know, many of whom spoke negatively about other teachings and other teachers. They highlighted their own uh, they thought they were the best. They spoke negatively, all sorts of different views and teachings. Like, you know, it could be like, you know, what we, you know, what we might have in an area where there are all sorts of teachings where we could think online, you have your choice, you know, of a hundred different, you know, spiritual practices and teachings. And they were confused by this. And they asked the Buddha, what do we do? 
which teachings do we follow? Which, pra which practices do we follow? His answer, it is proper for you, Kalamas, to doubt, to be uncertain. Uncertainty has arisen in you about what is doubtful. Come, Kalamas, and here's this powerful teaching. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition. How's that, right? Saying, don't follow tradition. Nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture. How's that, right? Nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor upon spacious reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor on upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, this monk is our teacher. Kalamas, when you know, you yourselves know. These things are bad, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise. Undertaking and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, abandon them. And then he goes on to say, I think I don't have this, when you find things that are positive, which are uh, supported by the wise, then, and when they are undertaken and observed, they lead to good things, then follow them. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Carlita. And so we have these very pragmatic approaches. And I think, Carlita, I think I'll probably send you another version that has that last passage, and I'll revise this just a little bit for, for Dharma Seed. And so we pretty striking, isn't it? How many spiritual traditions have you heard a teacher say, or do you find in the text, don't follow this because it's in the scriptures? right? Don't follow this because it's said by a teacher, right? But really have it be very grounded in your own experience. He does, uh, the Buddha does say that you want to have people you see as wise also as a reference point. So it's not totally just relying on one's own experience. I would say that plus the reference point of the wise, but very much emphasizing what you, one finds oneself. And so a very, very pragmatic approach saying that, um, you know, for example, the Buddha said that, you know, metaphysical answers to spiritual questions are much less central. You know, that what is really important is uh, what we find in our experience. And we could say what is most important is transforming to go back to some of our other gatherings in the last months. What's most important is to transform dukkha, grasping, reactivity. That's at the center of things. You know, and views at best can be helpful. And so to be very uh, wary of when we get attached to views. And the Buddha was primarily talking about what we might call spiritual views or views related to our practice. And, and so he didn't teach a whole belief system. Again, very unusual in terms of what we sometimes call the world religions. And so the Buddha um, talked about views in, in a few different ways. He emphasized really grounding in direct experience, really knowing one's direct experience. In one uh, famous text as well, which I could have put up with the others, he met a wandering yogi named Bahia, 
who said, you know, please teach me. And the Buddha at the time was involved with, I think, the alms round. He was kind of busy. So he said, later, Bihia, Bihia said, please teach me. He said, later. And then he asked him a third time. And in, in the uh, tradition of, of what's now India at that time, if someone asks something three times, you have to answer. <laughs> you can try that with your relatives. <laughs> see, if that, see if that works. Uh, but... Uh, so the Buddha answered because he had asked. He felt some urgency from Bahia. He said, you should train yourself thus, Bahia, in reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the thought, only the thought. Basically saying, stay with your immediate experience, ground in your experience. And Actually, the story goes that Bahia actually had a sense of urgency, whether he knew it or not, for good reason. He practiced very urgently for several days, according to the story, reached awakening, and after three days he died. So that, that's, that's how it is. That's how it is in the story. And so we could say, what's, um, what's problematic about getting attached to views? I think I, I suggested the answer, you know, when we use, even use the word attachment, what's the problem that we can get into with views? Basically, there's attachment, which is related to grasping or pushing away. What I've called, you know, in the uh, last few months, I've identified that as reactivity. So part of our inquiry is going to be to see, do some of my most important views have a connection with reactivity, either grasping after what I like or pushing away what I don't like? And do I find that I often grasp by going against uh, or by going beyond what I actually know? You know, we can find this sometimes in... Uh, our relations with others, uh, when we talk and use words like you always or you never. Anyone notice that in relationships? That occur? That's sometimes called throwing in the kitchen sink. You know, but we may find ourselves using words like always and never, which clearly go beyond the facts, right? You know, they clear, they're generalizing in a way. So we often, when we have reactivity, we will grasp onto ideas that we like or that think serve us. So in our practice, we want to look out for that. Do, it, do I have reactivity in relationship to my views? What's my language use? Am I exaggerating? Am I taking a partial truth and acting as if it's a whole truth? Right? Very, very common, you know. I think we find that uh, very, very common uh, in ourselves. You know, you know, you know from my teaching that I'm very supportive of many kinds of social action and social change. But I have to say that I find a great deal of grasping after views among activists. Anyone notice that? <laughs> you know, can be exaggerating or giving a partial truth and making... A, a full truth, you know, for example, um, something I, 
I've learned from uh, Kristen Barker, who is the, uh, I don't know if she would call herself the director, I think maybe the director of what's called One Earth Sangha, which is connecting uh, uh, Dharma teachings and practices with uh, ecological activism. And she chronicled uh, several ways that we may um, that we may take a partial truth and exaggerate it. So, for example, we might say, "Let me see if I can find this in my in my notes." Um, we might say, you know, in, maybe in relation to climate issues, we might say, um, "It's too late," right? Certain people would say that you know, which we don't really know. And there actually is evidence that things are dire in certain ways, but we might go beyond that. You know, that would be an example of kind of getting a partial truth and then attaching. Another one might be to say, people don't care about climate change, right? And some people may not care, but that might, that would be an exaggeration. Another one might be to say, People don't have the right information. And again, that's true, but in some ways, but it can lead to a strategy of trying to give people information, which often isn't going to work, work well. And so we might even think of times when, when have I sort of exaggerated social or political views? You know, very, very common. You know, I find that you know, a lot, you know, and again, maybe because we think it's important, we get attached. And we can also find ways that we have very strong tendencies to reactivity with our views about ourselves. You know, I find this a lot when I work with people on transforming the judgmental mind. And we go back often to views about ourselves which may have been developed in childhood. You know, it could be a view like, I'm not okay, or... Um, you know, this part of me isn't okay, or my anger is not okay, or I shouldn't get angry, or, um, you know, could be a, a, lot of, a lot of views like that, or, you know, uh, I don't really belong, or I'm weird, or has anyone noticed views like that in yourself? Yeah, we, you know, they're, they're pretty much there for most or all people. And one of the tricky things about these kind of views, I mentioned it earlier, a lot of these, especially when we're younger, can be largely unconscious. So it makes some of our work with views difficult. A lot of views are unconscious. Some of you know the work on, that's called work on implicit bias. Particularly, it could be related to different forms of oppression. It actually is very broad, but it could be related to race or gender, sexual orientation, age, and so forth. Um, and the research has shown that people carry all sorts of implicit biases that they're hardly in touch with, right? They're beneath the surface, uh, you know, in all of those areas. And part of actually mindfulness has been one of the ways to help bring those out and be aware of them. And the same thing is, and, you know, I'll mention one more thing I think I've sometimes mentioned, what the research on implicit bias shows is that, is that when my implicit bias comes in conflict with what I um, consciously believe, like in, in, in a particular uh, situation, 
my implicit bias typically wins when there's a conflict. My conscious belief, even that I might have, is secondary. And so this is related to the way that uh, I might have a lot of unconscious views about myself as well. You know, I, I work, you know, I'm working, uh, I've worked in the last uh, month or two or three with people who might be, I think in their 70s, working with unconscious beliefs that, that are coming into consciousness that have been there since childhood. It's never too late, but right, but it's just an example. We hold these, uh, we hold these views and they can be, uh, can be very strong and can be, uh, you know, can be linked with a, a lot of pain. And so this uh, work with views, this practice with views, goes in a number of directions. We start with seeing what we're conscious of, and I'll probably look at it more next time. We can also bring inquiry where there's a lack of consciousness. And this is not, this is not easy. You can see how the work with transforming views is a deep work that can really uh, need support, need time. You know, again, my example with the people in their 70s still working with limiting beliefs which came from childhood. And in childhood, one thing we should realize, they were the best we could do at that time. A lot of those limiting beliefs, they were the best we could do. I might have a limiting belief, I don't really belong, which comes out of a situation of feeling different or excluded, right? And as a child, that helps me make sense of it and know what a, uh, kind of have some meaning to a situation. It's kind of a, a way of protecting myself, defending myself. But then as I get older, I bring that limiting view into situations where, which are different where it's no longer so appropriate, you know. I might bring a view, anger is bad, because my parents told me, or basically criticized me when I got angry, you know. And then I'm 30 years old, I'm no longer in the house, I'm 40 years old, and I still think anger is bad, right? And then that's not so, not so functional, but it's something that we can, we can work with, you know. And by the way, that example about anger is one that I had, and probably still have, right? That I was raised to think anger was bad, right? And uh, naturally enough, uh, had a you know a long, close relationship with a woman who really expressed anger a lot. <laughs> you can imagine some of our discussions, okay? Right? And so uh, interesting, right? Yeah. Kind of reality sometimes sets us up like that, doesn't it? <laughs> so very, very interesting. And so, okay, let me switch now and, and close uh, with giving three practices to work with views. And I'll, I'll bring in some more uh, next week. But these are, these are three very basic practices that I hope that we feel uh, energized and maybe inspired to work with in the next week. And they, they have some parallels to, um, uh, with what we did in the guided meditation. So the first, very simple, mindfulness of views. And this, this works on a few levels. One of them is tracking in the next week, let's say, what are my main views? 
What are my top five? What are my top ten? Write them down. Make a list. You know, and explore them. What are my top views? What are my uh, top five views? What are my main views about? Are they about myself? Are they about others? Are they about the world? Are they political views? What are the views that I find when I look to my own experience? Another aspect of mindfulness of views is doing what we did at the end of the meditation period. That is to notice when views are strong and present. And we can do this in our meditation and also in the daily flow if that can work. Maybe you notice a strong view in the middle of your meditation. Bring attention. What's it like? You know, what's going on in my body? What happens in my body when I have a strong view? With this, what happens with this strong view? Again, it could be a negative view, it could be a positive view. What's occurring in my body? What emotions are there? What's the thought or narrative? Take a while to explore it. Can you feel like the view is being driven by reactivity? Can you feel some reactivity in your system? And then it's also possible to do, as I did at the end of the meditation period, to deliberately bring up an experience of having a very strong view surface. So you can bring up something that's happened earlier in the day or in the last week or even before. Bring it up, be with it about a minute or so. Let it be there as if you're reliving it and then bring your mindfulness to it. So usually we don't deliberately bring up experiences, but we can do this and it can be helpful to explore mindfulness, helpful to explore the, uh, our views. And then a third way of doing it is to notice when it happens uh, during the day. We, we're not in formal meditation. If it's possible to pause and explore it, right? Maybe you're, you know, maybe there's a situation where you can pause. Maybe you're at a meeting and you're not in charge and you can just sit back and explore. Oh, I have a strong view about what just happened. Let me explore it. What's going on in my mind, in my body, in my heart, right? In my emotions and really explore it. So those are three ways of exploring views using mindfulness. You know, and we can also maybe start to get a sense of views that are less conscious as well. Those are harder to, to find, but we can sometimes, you know, if you find yourself judging yourself really harshly sometime, sometimes, in, in my experience, both personal and working with people, sometimes you might just notice yourself in what we might call a funk, you know, or just really being in a kind of a fog or a cloud and not even knowing what's going on, just and then actually look, is there a view there? Typically there'd be a view, it might be beneath the surface, when you go into just, uh, you know, go into something like that. So explore that. A second practice, 
I think really depends on the first practice. A second practice is noticing when there's a charge around views. You know, we may notice that with the first practice, but this might happen more when we're interacting with someone, maybe watching the news or listening to something, maybe reading something. And I, I learned this especially, I learned this from a, a colleague named Robert McDermott, um, actually quite, quite a while ago. Um, at the time, I was, um, I was teaching philosophy in a, uh, in a university. And uh, I was invited, a bunch of us wanted to connect this traditional discipline of philosophy, which literally means the love of wisdom, which we thought had gone very far away from wisdom. And so um, there was, someone got a grant and they started a, a group to which I was invited called Revisioning Philosophy. We wanted to make philosophy practical, connected with experience, connected with uh, ethical and social political issues, also with spirituality. We had a wonderful group of people and we got together for several meetings. And then we started noticing that even in this supposedly enlightened group, people at times seem pretty attached to their views. Are you surprised? <laughs> right. They seem pretty attached to their views. And then uh, a friend, Robert McDermott, he said, let's take as a practice, when you notice some charge around views, start inquiring. What's going on? What's going on inside? And he, he I love this. He brought this into the whole group and we, we actually did it often as a practice. What's going on? You can do this with others. You can do this after you've noticed some charge. What's going on in your experience? And you might ask, is there something in my past which makes me have a charge in relation maybe to this other view that I don't like? What's going on? What would it like to be, what would it like to, uh, what, would it, what would it be like to be open to this view? Is there some truth in this other view? So that's a practice. You can do that, you know, at a holiday gathering with your relatives. I think it's not a beginning practice. It's not easy, is it? <laughs> right? So the first one is maybe more the beginning practice, the foundational practice. Looking and inquiring into a charge when you notice some charge, maybe some reactivity about someone else's view. That's the second practice. <clears throat> and it's fine if we just primarily do the first practice, but I wanted to give three. The third practice is bringing empathy and listening in relationship to someone else's view. It's kind of related to the second. But you might notice someone with a different view, whether you like it or not. Can you listen openly to this other person with empathy? You know, and... I've sometimes taught an empathy practice here on Wednesdays, which has two components. One is having a sense of the emotions of the other person. And then secondly, asking what matters for the other person. And so when we, 
listen to a view, we, we might say, what really matters for this other person? You know, before we go into why this other view is wrong or opposing it, you know, I, I think of an example I think I've given from time to time. Uh, I was once part <clears throat> of an interfaith retreat and kind of semi-protest that we did at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. We had about 30 people. We had a five-day retreat, and we sat outside of Los Alamos National Laboratory. They actually gave us a permit um, to actually uh, be there, although they said, you can't use our bathrooms. <laughs> and so what we did, uh, we resolved that by we rented we rented like a large uh, RV that had a bathroom. And so we were there for five days and we, you know, in the evenings we were, we camped at a, you know, a camping ground nearby. <clears throat> and, um, but we were, were able to have lunch every day with the scientists and technicians who worked at Los Alamos. And so we talked with them and some of us got into arguments about views and some of us tried to be more empathic, you know, and it was very interesting for me. I was more trying to really listen. What's important for this person who is defending making nuclear weapons, right? What's important? And I found, oh, they go, well, what's important for them? Security, right? This is a value that is a good one, right? Security is a good value. Can I listen to them and hear what's important for them, rather than just going into an opposite view. So that's a third practice. Listen with empathy to someone with different practices. You could do this in the moment, or you could also do this, uh, could also do this uh, sort of after the fact. Just think about them and try to bring empathy to them. Uh, you could think about someone and just say, what matters for that person? When that person was talking, what were the person's emotions? And that can be a beautiful practice. It's really about listening. You know, it's like uh, this person here on my screen uh, is Milarepa, Tibetan tradition, 11th century. He has his hand up, listening. Listening, a core spiritual practice. I also think of Kuan Yin, she who listens to the cries of the world. So listening empathically is so central a practice and very much a practice for for working with views. So let me stop here, invite us to consider doing those practices in the next week. Let me just invite us to sit quietly and see what is important for you, maybe some stories from your own experience that have come up maybe situations where you've listened or something that brought out an example of reactivity around you is let's just sit for a minute or so, see what comes to you, maybe see if there's a sharing or a question that comes to you. Take about a minute right now just to sit silently.
Let me invite anyone who would like to uh, share or to uh, ask a question of any kind. Um, please, you can use the raised hand function, or if you have your screen on, I can also see your hand if you just raise it. Okay, uh, looks like we have first uh, Vivian, please. Hi. Um, okay, so first I want to I want to tell a story. Okay. That happened since I met with the, with you last. Totals. I've been thinking okay. about. I'm glad I got to talk. Okay, so I discovered that I can be a very grumpy, judgmental person, mm. and I had workers, a number of workers, in my house, and nobody did what I wanted them to do. I mean, they got the general idea, but nobody did things correctly. And it drove me crazy so that I had to redo some of what was being done. And, um, and I'm kind of that kind of grumpy person. Oh, I just paid that person to do da da da. Now I have to go get the broom and clean it up. Um, and my husband was always very sweet and telling me, stop complaining so much, da da da. Well, I've been doing this for so long, I probably years, probably most of my life, um, that the other day he started complaining to me about things not having been done correctly by workers. Oh. And I heard him and I thought, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I sound like. That's awful. <laughs> Boy, I have changed my behavior now that I know. How that sounds to be like that, to be so negative. Yeah. You know, to be venting. Um, but I want to say sometimes I don't want to change a view. You know, you're talking a lot about changing yeah. views, but sometimes I don't want to. And then one more thing. So I, I, I'm often very curious to talk with people who have opposite views from me or different yeah. views. And sometimes after we have an open conversation, um, they never talked to me again. Like, I was okay. <laughs> uh -huh. I wasn't mad or anything. I really wanted to know, and I thanked them for letting me know. And I thought we were going to see each other again. It was a Trump supporter. And I didn't, I wasn't critical. I was just listening to why. And yet, he just disappeared. <laughs> you know, it was, okay. All right, that's enough, that's enough. Yeah, thank you, Vivian. Um, one thing that I don't know if I brought out so fully, um, which is a really important point about all this, and it's something that I found in doing the work on transforming the judgmental mind, it's that often I can be very judgmental or blaming like you were, Vivian, with the workers, and um, there's some truth to what I'm saying. You know, it's that what I found is that it's the truth that hooks the judgmental mind. It's almost like I have some truth or I have the truth. Therefore, whatever I say or do is okay. That's the hook. I, I think that occurs often. Uh, Any really, a lot of times we become judgmental. We have some truth. And so the formula that I use for working with the judgmental mind is distinguish the truth aspect of the judgment, so to speak, from the reactivity and use what's true 
for the benefit of compassionate action. And so a lot of our inner work is transforming the reactivity. You know, so there may be, there's something there maybe with your, the, the workers that is important to notice, right? We don't want to throw that out, but we have to separate that from the reactivity. And we can do that with some of our inner practices. And I think that's, a, that's the general formula, but it's the reason why views are so tricky because often they do have some truth or some, something that's valid, right? You know, uh, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, looks like we have, uh, we have Bill, Victoria, and Christine. So if we can be on, on the relatively brief side with the uh, um, questions we're sharing, that'd be helpful so we can get everyone in. Okay. Um, thanks, Donald. Uh, first off, I really appreciate these three practices that you're talking about because I think they'll become useful tools in those discussions during the holidays <laughs> yeah. and in, in groups. So thank you so much for that. And, and, and I can see where uh, this plays out because uh, I'm part of a philosophy group called the Thinkers Club oh. out of the Cleveland area. It's a meetup group online. And uh, we had a discussion on Monday about current events and the ide ideological breakdown that's taking place. And uh, a lot of, uh, there were some in the group that really had a position, a very strong position. And I always advocate in those discussions to find commonality. Yeah. And it was a real struggle to find some commonality with the strong positions that some people held. And I really like some of the tools that you talk about, especially the third one being, um, uh, empathetic to someone else's view um, and also finding what is important to them uh, whether that's you know uh, security or are they fearful I think that can be very helpful in those discussions and right. asking those curious questions and that's something I'm trying to improve upon to get better yeah. at instead of just trying to find that commonality. So you really gave me some additional tools. So I thank you for very, that. Uh, very, very beautiful, Bill. And yeah, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know the kind of relationships you have with the others, but maybe they'd be interested in following them too, or some of them, you know, because uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, I really would love to, I don't know, you, do you meet uh, monthly, do you say? We, we, we meet weekly, oh, weekly in this right. particular philosophy group, so I get a chance I'll be able to do that and maybe even bring that up as far as suggestions when there's this level of polarization into the discussion. I'm usually bringing in chat discussions, yeah. part of it, and I did bring in a chat discussions about an author, uh, Maria Ressi, oh. who wrote a book, How to, uh, uh, what was her, she had two books. Uh, one was on uh, how to how to uh, you know it was about bullying about about a dictator I, I, you know the the name escapes me and then also the um, uh, the the social media aspect of from Bin Laden to Facebook and I brought that into the chat beforehand and it got it kind of got ripped apart because people were like, oh, she has this view. And that wasn't the point. My point was, what type of societies are we creating 
when we have this level of distortion that we focus on and repeat and repeat lies or lies and, 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 and missteps, what kind, of, what kind of societies will we create when we amplify the level of, uh, of lies and mistruths in the, in the world? Yeah. yeah, thanks, Bill. Yeah, hope you, hope you can come next week and tell us what happened. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Uh, Victoria, please. Yeah, thanks. Sorry, I had to walk somewhere for a second. Um, I just wanted to tell a really quick story that made a huge impact on me um, because it was such a, I don't know. Anyway, um, just to be very brief, the, uh, the Episcopal, when the, this is some time ago, like 10 years ago, the, the new Episcopal Bishop of San Diego was um, installed or whatever the term is. And we had a lot of friends um, that were involved, and so they invited us, and so we went. And there was one woman, that all the bishops came from all over the United States. I guess that's traditional. And there was one woman among all these men. And so during the reception afterwards, I made a beeline for it because I thought it was so, you know, I wanted to know how she felt being the single woman there. And she was the Bishop of Nevada. And um, so we had a little chat, and she told me something that I've never forgotten. She said that, I asked her what it was like, and she said Nevada was so conservative when she first arrived there um, and, and was um, ordained bishop. The, um, she met with a tremendous opposition, especially from older women. It was older women that were just infuriated because they didn't believe in women's ordination, and they were totally against her and hostile, and she felt this cold atmosphere. And it went on for a long time, and then about a year later, after her um, service one day, um, there was a whole gaggle of these older women who had been her most virulent opponents mm. and um, they were kind of waiting around. And so then um, they greeted her when they had an opportunity and, um, and they said, we just want to tell you that we don't believe that women should be ordained, but we love you. <laughs> and so as she told me the story, um, she said that she the, the word that she used for that kind of experience is incarnational, which I think is a beautiful word. In other words, you hold these fixed beliefs and views and you hang on to them for dear life, even in the face of a, an experience that contradicts your fixed view. Mm. But at some point, if you're really if you're really honest with yourself, it melts away in the actual experience of, a, of another human being in that yeah. situation. Yeah. And so I just thought that incarnation, I don't know, I just, it's, I've never forgotten that story. It was so moving to me. So I just wanted to share it with everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. There's a lot there. Yeah, very, there's a lot there that we could unpack, you know, that uh, people through, like you say, coming back to experience and letting go of aspects of their views. So, yeah, I think so. We have time for Christine. I think one more, please. Thank you. So I just wanted to observe, Donald, that as you were sharing about the, the mindfulness part, um, I have found it, so the first strategy, yeah. um, I have found for myself, having grown up in Philadelphia, uh, largely in a Jewish community and with an attorney for a father. Did, did, um, you, say, that, uh, did you say Philadelphia? I did, yes. Yeah, okay. And uh, my mom's family's Jewish and my dad was an attorney. And so a lot of very expressive you know, strong opinions. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't get a lot of opportunity as a young person to practice checking in with my body. That was yeah. not yeah. 
you know, it was more about being able to engage mentally, particularly with my dad, not necessarily an argument, but just to get my thoughts out. Yeah. Um, And then I went on for my own higher level of education, right? So what I want to say about that is um, it's taken me, I would say uh, meditation in particular has given me the opportunity and some other things, but given me the opportunity to really reflect on that visceral reaction when there are strong views. Because my learning, you were talking about learning as a kid, my learning is dive in, say what I have to say, you know, and my brain processes pretty quickly. So especially verbally. So for better or worse, that's my inclination. But what I've noticed is if I can pause and take a moment to notice my heart's pounding. Yeah. Um, I'm not breathing very deeply. Mm. I'm, you know, all those pieces that we might check in with about our stress level. Yeah. It slows me down. I, I might, I might even say to someone, Hey, my heart's really pounding. I'm having a hard time listening. Can you give me a second? Like, whatever it's basically working against all of my early development and my life in academia because let's be honest academia prides everything up here and nothing below in my experience so i'm just putting that out there to say that i think the visceral reminder the check-in with our physiology for me yeah especially and i notice many people's names on this call who might identify as jewish they may not i'm making my own inference (laughs) You know, there's not a lot of permission in that community to go out of your head and into your body, at mm. least in my experience. So I'm just putting that out there for my own experience and people's consideration. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Christine. And, you know, my, I imagine that my own conditioning was similar. You know, um, kind of growing up with uh, more intellectual, Jewish, somewhat activist family, you know, and that uh, probably like many of us learning to really ground in the body and actually the emotions was just totally central to my own learning. And for many of us, um, probably to work with views in this way, if, if, uh, you know, the practice of mindfulness with views, um, can really benefit from just, uh, you know, if we've learned to ground further in our bodies, then that's crucial. And for some of us, I know when I've worked, you know, with groups over the years, um, sometimes people need to really focus for a period of time. I know for me, it was a main focus for a number of years just to ground further in the body Mm -hmm. and to be able to access that, you know, and I probably too major periods. That's what I first learned when I first started meditating was a lot about the body. And then at a later period also to, to, to be able to keep body awareness more and more all the time, which is not easy. So I think what you're suggesting really helpful is a practice we sometimes call a pause. When, let's say one notices oneself reactive in relation to a view, pause, notice what's going on in the body. Uh, you know, that very simple practice of pausing during the day when there's something happening, intense, or is such a crucial practice. It goes such a long way to to pause in that way. So thank you for bringing that up. And just to, yeah, and, and sometimes in an interaction saying, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, whatever the word is, I'm a little bit uh, um, 
I'm a little bit triggered or I'm a little bit wired or, you know, I've noticed that that had a big impact on me. Can we just pause for a moment or can we come back to that in a little while? Not everyone will say yes, but it's good to ask the question, <laughs> right? And so, uh, yeah, thank you for that. There's a, there's a lot there. So, yeah, wonderful. Um, wonderful sharing from everyone with the stories and the uh, examples and you know, we'll hear, maybe hear back from Bill next week about how it was, <laughs> uh, how it was, uh, when, when, uh, when Robert McDermott introduced that method into our group of people who were, you know, doing philosophy, people were receptive. I don't know how many actually did it. I was very impacted. I did that practice for you know, several years after that, really had a big, uh, influence on me. Yeah, and it still stayed with me. Okay, so th thank you so much for all your listening and internal processing. Let's take, uh, let's take a few moments right now. First of all, just to again, uh, thank Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Yeah, thanks, Carlita. And then secondly, bring to mind your intentions for the next week. You know, for many of us uh, working with these practices around views, how many would like to look at views in the next week? How many of you would like to look at views? Maybe come back. Great. So set your intentions for that. What's going to help you to remember? How do you want to carry this out? Yeah, and if you wish, take notes on what you find. We can bring it back next week. It would be, can be fun. It's, um, you know, especially, especially if it's at holiday gatherings. Very interesting. Okay. And then, lastly, I'll close with the dedication of merit. Remembering that we practice, inquire, we do transformative work with views for our own sake, but also for the sake of others and for our world. And so can we remember that perspective as we offer the benefits of our time and of our practice to all beings, going beyond ourselves, our own circles, offering the benefit of our time, our practice to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much, and if you want to unmute, we can uh, say goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and I'll put the talk and the references on Dharma Seed. So to be continued. Yay. Yay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.